GEP AI-powered digital transformation. GEP is the global leader in AI-powered procurement and supply chain transformation, helping companies achieve impressive new levels of resilience, sustainability, and competitiveness with strategy-managed services and AI-powered low-code software platform, GEP Quantum. Hundreds of market-leading companies worldwide count on GEP to transform their procurement and supply chain operations and achieve amazing results. GEP.com Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. In America, trans rights debates are multiplying and are perhaps nowhere more fraught than in the criminal justice system. We look at the balancing of rights that's required when it comes to housing trans prisoners. And at Russian protests, plenty of people are holding up gold-painted toilet brushes. Luxuriant loos can tell you a lot about despotic leaders, so we head into the smallest rooms from history. But first... For the sixth consecutive day of Cross Myanmar, tens of thousands of protesters have taken to the streets. They've been demonstrating since the military seized power last week, overthrowing the elected government of Aung San Suu Kyi. The army has claimed, without evidence, that an election in November won by Ms. Suu Kyi's party was fraudulent. On Monday, the top military commander, now in charge, Min Ong Lain, made his first televised address since the coup. He restated a pledge to hold elections after a year-long state of emergency. And he tried to reassure the public and investors that his interim government would be different from the oppressive junta that ran the country for nearly half a century. But America said yesterday it'll impose fresh sanctions in response to the coup. I've approved a new executive order enabling us to immediately sanction the military leaders who directed the coup, their business interests, as well as close family members. And Myanmar's biggest protest movement in a generation isn't backing down. Every night since the army toppled Myanmar's civilian government on February 1st, people all over the country have banged their pots and pans at 8 p.m. This is an old ritual to cast out evil spirits, which has morphed into a protest. Charlie McCann is our Southeast Asia correspondent. Many of these demonstrations have the air of a, of a carnival. Yesterday, about 100 young women paraded around downtown Yangon wearing Disney princess outfits because they wanted to make the point that it wasn't just grown-ups who are angry about the coup, it's also girls their age. And the streets are flooded with red balloons, red being the color of Aung San Suu Kyi's National League for Democracy Party, the NLD. In fact, if you look at pictures today, you won't see that many red balloons anymore because they've all sold out. And how has the military reacted to all these protests? What's changed since we spoke just over a week ago when the protests hadn't started, but there was clearly discontent about the coup? The army is trying to put a stop to these protests. On Monday, its Orwellian-named True News Information team issued a statement saying that action would be taken against wrongdoers who disrupt the state's stability. 
True to their word, in cities across the country, police are lobbing tear gas into crowds and firing water cannon. In Mandalay, Myanmar's second city, the police try to disperse a crowd by beating them with truncheons. And police are also firing rubber bullets. Three protesters are now being treated for wounds from rubber bullets. And two people in the capital, Naypyidaw, were shot with what seems to have been live ammunition. And so as the military response ramps up, are are people frightened of what might happen if they continue to take to the streets? Yeah, I mean, despite the carnivalesque air of some of these protests, there is a deep sense of foreboding. Military rule only ended 10 years ago, so people remember how the previous junta crushed dissent. Huge rallies took place in 1988 and in 2007, and the army responded by shooting into crowds of protesters, killing hundreds of people. So protesters today are right to be worried, and they're alive to the fact that the military regime is up to its old tricks again. Agents from the feared intelligence service are knocking on doors, driving many activists and journalists into hiding. At least 200 people have been arrested. And on Monday, 90 districts, including in the largest city and in the capital, imposed curfews and restricted gatherings to no more than five people, effectively criminalizing public assembly. And last night, the draft of a new cybersecurity law that the government wants to pass was leaked. This would give the regime sweeping powers to control the internet and effectively end free speech online. So given all of those risks, who is it that's daring to go out into the streets? It is people from all walks of life, teenagers, laborers, professionals. Lots of people are on strike, teachers, firefighters and health workers. Government workers are resigning en masse, among them the entirety of the Ministry of Welfare. We saw in extraordinary scenes on Tuesday, a handful of officers from the police force actually broke ranks and joined the protesters. I say this is extraordinary because the police is under the command of the army, so it's very unusual for them to be doing this. And joining them yesterday were nearly 50 police officers from Kaya State who declared their opposition to the coup. And what is it they all want? Well, of course, they want to reverse the coup, they want to restore democracy, and they want the release of their hero, Aung San Suu Kyi, as well as other members of her National League for Democracy Party who have also been detained. And do you think there's a chance that with all of this unrest, the coup might backfire on the generals, not just the response of the people, I suppose, but also international response? It certainly hasn't been the fait accompli they expected. Mass resignations, as I mentioned, are roiling the bureaucracy and foreign businesses are exiting the country. So analysts are saying it's going to be very difficult to see how they get back to some kind of status quo ante. And younger generations are not going to back down easily. They're more educated than they were a decade ago, more organized and much more connected because of the arrival of the internet about a decade ago. Youth leaders' demands are hardening. They're talking about ending army rule altogether and scrapping the constitution, which the generals wrote. Some activists I interviewed said that if nonviolent methods of protest fail, they are bent on taking up weapons and fighting. When it comes to the international community in America, President Joe Biden said yesterday that he had approved an executive order that will pave the way for new U.S. sanctions. We will identify a first round of targets this week, and we're also going to impose strong exports controls. We're freezing U.S. assets that benefit the Burmese government while maintaining our support for health care, 
civil society groups, and other areas that benefit the people of Burma directly. But will these sanctions do much, do you think? Joe Biden has staked his foreign policy on reinvigorating democracy around the world. And that's why he's so keen to roll out these sanctions. But they are unlikely to convince the generals to change course. Just two years ago in 2019, the commander-in-chief, Minang Lang, and three other generals had sanctions placed on them by the U.S. They proceeded with their coup anyway. They're used to being isolated by the world. And I just don't think that America's sanctions are going to convince them to change course. I fear that this conflict between the protesters and the army may be coming to a head. The commander-in-chief is a deeply proud man, and he will not idly stand by as the institution to which he's dedicated his career is humiliated by protesters and Disney princess outfits. At the same time, the protesters are digging in their heels. I think it's become clear that over the last week, there's no returning to the quasi-democracy that Myanmar enjoyed over the last decade. Either the army cracks down and it's returned to the battle days of military rule, or a new political system is going to emerge from the ruins of the old one. My fear is that the former scenario seems much more likely than the latter. Charlie, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. This week, The Economist Asks, our sister interview show, is with Christine Lagarde, president of the European Central Bank. Our editor-in-chief, Zanny Minton-Beddoes, covered a lot of ground, from COVID-19 to climate change to whether the ECB had any plans to introduce a digital currency. I would say, you know, it's hard to say, but I would say in the next four years, uh, we should we should we should be there. And you know, it's I just hope that uh, your audience appreciates that it's not to substitute existing payment means. So those who like banknotes will continue to use their banknotes. But those who want to use digital payment should be able to do so. Look for The Economist Asks later today and every Thursday, wherever you listen. Among the flurry of executive orders that President Joe Biden signed on his first day in office was one protecting people from discrimination on the basis of their gender identity. The administration has already faced pushback over the order, prompting the White House press secretary, Jen Psaki, to defend it earlier this week. I would just say that the president's belief is that uh, trans rights are human rights, and that's why he signed that executive order. Protections for transgender people can be challenging to implement, That's especially true in the criminal justice system, where trans women are often subject to mistreatment and placed in men's prisons. Last month, California introduced a new law that allows prisoners to be housed in accordance with their gender identity. But that approach to incarceration has become part of a charged debate over transgender rights. So Carla Bello is a young trans woman in Florida. Following a series of minor traffic violations, she failed to turn up in court. And because she was unable to pay her bail of $500, she was put in jail. Mian Ridge is our U.S. news editor. She was treated very poorly by the prison guards. They called her sir. They confiscated her bra and her gaff, which is this piece of fabric that transgender women use to flatten male genitalia under clothing. But probably more seriously than that, she was denied the cross-sex hormones, oestrogen, that she'd been taking for at least a couple of years. 
because her body had adjusted to these hormones, being unable to take them had a very deleterious effect on her body and she and made her feel extremely unwell and very anxious. And she probably would have spent months in jail if a transgender lawyer who's sympathetic to the plight of, of transgender inmates hadn't become aware of her case and helped get her out. And this kind of situation must arise a lot when trans women are housed in men's prisons. Do we, do we have a sense for how often that happens? Well, we don't actually know for sure, but we know that a majority of transgender women are put in men's jails, whether that's federal jails or state jails. And the US Bureau of Prisons suggests there's more than 5,000 transgender inmates, but the number is probably much higher than that. But it seems that more places, whether they're counties or there's a couple of states now that have policies, at least on paper, that allow transgender inmates to request to be moved into a prison that corresponds with their gender identity. So we don't know the numbers, but the number's definitely increasing. And this is going to be a growing area of contention in America. But in light of that equality standard that's being applied in other spheres, are there issues around applying it in prisons? In prisons, this has very obvious sort of practical ramifications. There's the issue of safety. So the trans activist side would say trans women are women. There are feminist groups that would say that's not true. You can't deny the reality of biological sex because that ignores the fact that men are are much more violent than women. They commit in America 90% of murders. They're 92% of the prison population. And in the absence of any evidence that trans women have lower levels of criminality than men, those are statistics that should inform the policies. It's impossible to weed out those transgender women who might potentially present a danger to women. Of course, most trans women don't pose a risk, but some of them might. And also, this policy allows the potential for some male sex offenders to claim to be trans to gain access to women. Because the laws as they are at the moment, and increasingly policies, define being transgender as a question of gender identity. So it need not be dependent on surgery, having had surgery or taking cross-sex hormones. If you say that you're a woman, you're regarded as a woman. And another big concern is privacy. Over years and years, societies have established that women have a right to their own spaces for for privacy. And that might be particularly important in prisons because the vast majority of female prisoners have suffered trauma of some sort, in most cases at the hands of men. So they've been battered and abused. And to take away that right in prison seems to be particularly egregious. There are a couple of feminist groups in America who are quite outspoken about this, who believe that there's a grave error in eliding or conflating biological sex with gender identity. They're quite different things. And that once you do that, it sets up a clash between the rights of women and the rights of transgender people, women particularly, since most transgender people are women. And so how is this being dealt with from a legal standpoint? It's very important to say that the wider context for this is that America doesn't have a federal law that prohibits discrimination on the basis of gender identity. So around half the states have sorts of laws that do offer those sorts of protections. And some federal agencies have legislation on public housing, say, that prevents discrimination. But that leaves lots of areas uncovered in healthcare and in private housing. And of course, laws that prohibit discrimination also inform the way that people behave in in normal everyday life. So that kind of law is badly needed. In the absence of it, Various policies are being put forward, often by trans activists, and underlying all of them is this idea that biological women, natal-born women, and transgender women should be treated exactly the same because they are the same in law. And that affects sports teams at school, it affects bathrooms in public places, and increasingly it's affecting prisons. So hence California's change in the law to accommodate the needs and wants of transgender prisoners. 
a lawyer for a transgender organisation told me that they're often sham policies. They're there on paper, but they don't actually make any difference to the way that transgender inmates are housed. And he's hopeful that the Californian law, because of various differences in the ways it's actually written, will affect change. So more transgender women will be able to go into women's prisons. We've yet to see whether that will happen, but it seems likely and he's very hopeful that it will. There's a lot to be balanced here. I mean, how has this been dealt with in, in other countries? So lots of rich countries are grappling with the same issue of the apparent clash of trans rights and women's rights. But there are almost always some sort of practical solutions that can be looked at. Britain opened a trans wing in a women's prison. That happened after there was an attack by a sex offender who identifies as a woman and was put in a women's prison and assaulted several women. But to develop those sorts of policies, there needs to be a debate about the dangers and the risks. And in America, that's simply not happening at the moment. So it's difficult to imagine such a solution being implemented in, in this country simply because it's not being discussed. And in the absence of that discussion, then, how do you think things will, will play out? I think any changes that happen will probably be quite slow. I think all institutions are slow to incorporate change. And I think the prison system is probably particularly slow. The lawyer I spoke to from a transgender group who talked about these sham policies that some counties had introduced said, you can have a policy on paper, but if the prison service on the ground doesn't want to implement it, it won't. Now, that might change if Joe Biden passes the Equality Act, which is going to make a lot more of these laws much more concrete. But there were guidelines introduced in 2012 that required all prisons to ask trans inmates whether they would feel safest to be housed in a men's prison or a women's prison. And the evidence suggests that that's made almost no difference at all to the way that prisons have been housed. Of course, more strong, concrete policies might make more of a difference, but change will come slowly. So in the meantime, it seems likely that slowly more trans women will enter women's prisons. And that's likely to create problems. And those problems are likely to spark court cases. And those court cases might make policymakers think again. But it seems very much as if it's a policy that's going to be tested on the ground and unfortunately tested on a group of particularly vulnerable and voiceless people. Both women in prisons and transgender women in men's prisons will suffer. Mian, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. Can supply chains be more sustainable without losing performance, efficiency, and resilience? It's possible with GEP. With strategy managed services and AI-powered software, GEP helps hundreds of market-leading companies build sustainable supply chains that are cleaner, greener, and highly effective. Supply chains that are good for the planet and good for your business. GEP. Software. Strategy. Managed services. GEP.com. Vladimir Putin wants to project a certain image, that of the ideal specimen of a Russian president. Shirtless in khaki combat fatigues, galloping over the Ural Mountains on a white horse in search of a bear to wrestle. But protesters are trying to conjure a different image, the man with a golden toilet brush. The golden toilet brush that you see being held aloft in news footage coming out of Russia right now is a reference to a, a kind of revelation in a story about the habits of Vladimir Putin. Matthew Sweet writes for 1843, The Economist's sister magazine. The currently imprisoned critic of uh, Putin, Alexei Navalny, 
He's released a video purporting to show us around this vast palace that he claims that Putin has built with an enormous amount of dirty money that contains an $824 toilet brush. I think that image of the toilet brush being held aloft to protest against Putin plugs into a, a long history of the dictator's bathroom as a space that, that reveals the nature of the authoritarian. So, so what is the historical context here, uh, the, the thrones behind the power? There's a kind of uh, common quality that the bathrooms of authoritarians and despots have. And it's a really weird one. They always want to reach back to pre-revolutionary France, which I think is one of the things that cements the dictator's bathroom as a kind of image of of hubris. Because if we look into the bathroom, say, of uh, Nikolai Ceausescu, you'll see this kind of Rococo quality that looks like Marie Antoinette might have used these facilities. And we all know what happened to her. Or if we look at uh, Idi Amin, uh, bathroom set. They always want to gesture back to, to pre-revolutionary France. They always want to be sun kings of some kind as they're sitting on the toilet. And why do you think it is that, that history ends up focusing on, on the smallest room anyway? There's a kind of ritual exposure of the dictator's bathroom that happens after he's toppled. I mean, you could see that in the Iraq war when Saddam Hussein's domestic spaces were kind of smashed up and violated in that way. But there's a great example from the Second World War of a bathroom that belonged to Adolf Hitler um, in an apartment that he had in Munich. The photographer Lee Miller So she went into that bathroom with a colleague of hers, of another photographer, and she sat in the bath and she put a photograph of Hitler on the side of the bath as though he was some kind of peeping Tom looking at her while she was bathing. And there's the most incredible detail in this, a a kind of act of of defiance and almost retribution, I think, on, on Lee Miller's part. She'd spent that day walking around Dachau concentration camp, taking in the enormity of what had happened there. And so when she went into that bathroom, she took off those boots and the dirt of the Holocaust, the dirt of genocide, was brought right into Hitler's personal space. But it seems, though, that autocrats really want to dominate even spaces that other people aren't going to see. Well, autocrats want to get into every space that they can. They want to occupy the airwaves. They want to get into your living room. Think about all of those dictators who have demanded their portraits up on people's living room walls. But I think Mussolini is a good example of a dictator who tried, anyway, to penetrate the bathroom space of his public because there is um, evidence that bars of soap with his face on were sold in fascist Italy, a kind of propaganda effort that kind of backfired because the more you use this soap, the weirder this little effigy in kind of glycerin and uh, animal fat got. So if you think about that image of Mussolini's face melting on the side of the sink, I think you've got there a kind of story about the limits of totalitarian power and the preposterous nature of it if it's exercised even in the smallest room in the house. Matthew, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review. And see you back here tomorrow.
What do resilient, sustainable, and high-performing supply chains have in common? They are all powered by GEP software. Built on GEP Quantum, the AI-powered, low-code software platform for procurement, supply chain, and sustainability, GEP software helps market-leading companies worldwide achieve breakthrough performance and results. GEP, helping the world's best companies do better. Visit GEP.com.